Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that believes if Shohei Otani really is the greatest two-way player of all time, Kenny Cook. I'm Jake Mintz. That is not Jordan Schusterman. Jordan is currently climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and is unavailable to do the podcast today. So instead, we have roped in Mr. Foolish Bailey, Bailey Freeman, Foolish Baseball, the man of many names, the man shadow band on twitter.com for posting porn bailey how's it going good yeah i just you know i just post porn pretty much 24 7 on there so turns out they don't want you to do that uh but yeah i'm I'm shadow banned because i keep posting immaculate grid and because i'm a good boy i actually censor it so people don't get spoiled because i posted it about 12 15 a.m every day who would have thought that you being a thoughtful human being not ruining a dorky baseball game for other people on twitter is what would have gotten you potentially shadow banned on Twitter. But you can find Foolish at FoolishBB. Just mm-hmm. type it in, search it, it'll type, come up. Type it on Google, though, because you won't find it on Twitter. <laughs> Google him on Twitter. If you don't know <laughs> Foolish by now, you're living under a rock a la Patrick Starr. Just follow him, watch all of his YouTube videos on both channels. That's right. Foolish Bailey. Foolish and- Baseball and Foolish Bailey. Oh, but Foolish is going to pinch hit or pinch run. Uh, of all the different baseball things, pinch hit, pinch run, like coming out of the pen, what would you describe your presence on this pod today as? I- I'm coming in kind of like mop-up duty. We're down eight to three, and there's a runner on first and second with no outs. And I'm just trying You're, to keep it respectable. I think of you as the 27th man in the doubleheader. That's right. That's exactly who I am. I didn't know I was pitching today. You know, you you gave me the call last night. And I packed my bags, and here I am. Uh, we, we should have done the video where the, the AAA coach tells you that you're being called up, the secret cam. Yeah, yeah, we should have done that. And then I should have had like sort of like the Zach Greinke type response where I, I just wished I could have started over and like been on ESPN or something like that. Mm, exactly. I, we, we've talked a lot on the show how the Orioles record all their call-ups, and you get the wide range of dude super happy and then Jordan Westberg, when he got called up, was basically like, that is very good. Cannot wait. It's like very, very sick. Uh, as we do every Monday, we're going to fly through the results from the weekend. And we will pick out some of the bigger topics from those games. And then we will talk about the only thing that matters in the world of baseball. Shohei Otani, will he, won't he get traded? Then we will move on to the Baltimore Orioles Chasing down the Tampa Bay Rays, the San Diego Padres being a bad baseball team, Roki Sasaki, Tim Anderson, Michael Garcia, and a variety of call-ups. But let's begin with the weekend that was. 
We had a whole lot of sweeps, six to be exact. The Brewers sweeping the Reds. Not going to go in depth on the Reds yet until our beat reporter, Jordan Schusterman, is back on Wednesday from Mount Kilimanjaro. He's such a quick climber, Bailey. I mean, he's what he's a beast on the mountainside. But we'll talk yeah. about the Reds at that point. Orioles sweeping the Marlins. Blue Jays sweeping the Diamondbacks. Twins over the A's. Rangers over the Guardians. And Giants over the Pirates. Two out of threes. The Rockies taking a series from the Yankees after a late capitulation on Sunday. Ron Marinaccio allowing three runs in the bottom of the 11th, I believe. And the Rockies, what a pointless franchise uh, unless they are beating the Yankees at home. The Rays taking two or three from the Royals. Red Sox two or three from the Cubs. The Braves dropping a series to the White Sox. Billy, you're a Braves fan. Any quick thoughts on that one? I think it's only the second series they've lost. They lost to the Oakland A's, so you know they only lose to the best. The entire Braves team was probably exhausted from the All-Star game. Eight of them showed up. It, it, the, the, the shot of the Braves on the red carpet where they couldn't fit because right. they were being announced, dominance. Uh, Tigers over the Mariners. That's a, if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound series. The Astros over the Angels on Sunday night. We'll definitely talk about that. Cardinals over the Nats. Dodgers over the Mets. And then the three out of four, the Phillies over the Padres in games six, seven, eight, and nine of the 2022 NLCS. Let's just hop right into Otani, though, because we got a report at the end of last week that the Angels were, quote, open to hearing offers, which is way more than we have heard from the Angels and Otani before. Then they went out over the weekend and almost, almost beat the Astros, except Jaime Berea kind of shot the bed late on Sunday Night Baseball. And here the Angels sit six games back in the wild card race with a handful of weeks before the trade deadline. And so I'm going to ask the simple and um, lazy question, is Shohei Otani going to get traded? Bailey Freeman. I, I wish I think if you're in the Angels position, you can't decide that today. Even, you know, you've still got uh, some games to play leading up to the trade deadline. And depending on how they perform in those games, you could see their playoff odds fluctuate a lot. You know, I, I'm checking, you know, fan graphs, you know, playoff odds pretty often in there, you know, sort of fluctuating in that five, 10 percent range. But if they get hot, you know, that could be 30, 40 percent by the time you get to the trade deadline, in which case they shouldn't trade them. Um, but yeah, I, I I kind of it's a little bit of a different situation, but I do kind of think back to the uh, what the Nats were going through with uh, Bryce Harper in his final year. And I think it may just come down to if they get an offer that they really, 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 really like. And uh, I don't think the Nats got that with Harper and, uh, you know, Harper was going to test free agency no matter what. I don't think it was going to be easy to get like an like a trade and an extend situation for him. And so we'll just have to see if uh, what happens with Otani is similar. There was a Harper deal on the table that I think the Nats front office accepted that the ownership group nixed at the last minute. There was also a similar one last year, I believe, with Otani to the Yankees that the Yankees ownership group nixed at the last minute. Or maybe it was the Angels, but it, it there was on the table and it was moving forward. And I think that's a good reminder with Otani. Like, this is not a GM picking up the phone and calling his buddy and saying, we'll give you X for Y. 
cash considerations for your 26th man. This is ownership level transactions. And what that means is that Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, will get involved in any conversation about Otani. And it is very important to remember that Artie Moreno is not a rational actor. This is not someone who makes predictable decisions. He has not done so since he bought the team in 2003. That, by the way, Bailey, important Artie Moreno thing is mm-hmm. that he did not own the team in 2002 when they won. No. Right? It is not as if he has brought this franchise a, a, a flag. The opposite, in fact. He took the 2003 team, and since then, they were the defending champs. Since then, they have not really done shit. And so, Artie Moreno is a bizarre person. He is a bizarre owner. And I think even if the Angels lose every single game between now and the deadline, I could see Artie being like, if we trade him away, we're lessening the opportunity that we're going to sign him in the offseason. Right. Which is irrational, right? Yeah, I mean... It it is irrational to think that they have a like a really good shot of extending him no matter what they do whether they trade him or not. But uh, you know the thing about Artie Moreno is that he is irrational, but I do believe sincerely that he wants to win. Yes, uh, and so that's that's an element of it too. What do we want to happen? Because I don't think it's worth spending a lot of time and energy worrying about what will happen because, like you said, we don't know. We really don't know what's going to happen. What do you want to happen? What is the ideal Otani scenario between now and October 31st? I think I think for me, just like as a baseball fan in general, I think he gets traded to a team different from the one who will give him the mega deal at the end of the season. So we get to see him, you know, play in the playoffs some, and then we still get to go through all the hubbub of the free agency and the record breaking contract and everything like a Machado Dodgers situation. Exactly. Yeah. Except I would say I would prefer for him to be on a team that would otherwise never get a shot to employ him. Right. Exactly. So like the race or something like that. The Rays, the Reds, the Orioles, the Brewers, the Marlins would be incredibly bizarre and fun. They'll never do it. But if he ends up for, you know, on the Yankees for two months and then they miss the playoffs by a game, that is not worthwhile. I'm going to say this, though. Here's what I want to happen. I want him to carry the Angels to the postseason. And then I want them to get swept in two games in the wild card round. That would also be be great. That would be best case scenario because, again, the odds of this happening now are so slim because Trout is out and Rendon is bad and out and the Angels are very injured and they're not that good of a team to begin with. But if Otani could do it, if he could go hero ball, if he could go Allen Iverson 2001, get on my back, we're going to the promised land, that would be just amazing. Maybe, Maybe he pitches every other game. Mm, kind of like an old Haas Radborn situation down the stretch. If he really wanted it bad enough, he would do it, right? Yeah, if he wanted it bad, you know. I mean, I thought I thought he wanted to win. I thought he wanted to win too. And here he's not even playing defense. <laughs> <laughs> what a bum! Um, but the Otani saga is far from over. There will be many twists and turns between now 
and the trade deadline. And whenever something happens, we will surely let you know about it. Not as it like we're not going to be the ones breaking the news, but we'll react to it here on Baseball Barbacast. All right, Bailey. I want to talk about the Baltimore Orioles, who currently sit one game back of the Tampa Rays in the American League East. Tampa Bay was 27 and six on May 5th. Okay, the 1972 Miami Dolphins were getting concerned. Mm. And since then, they are 33 and 30, aggressively mid. The Orioles sit one game back. What have you made of the Rays' slide, relative slide, over the last two months? Yeah, it's it's sneaky. I guess you first started to pay attention to it when the Rangers caught them in the American League. There was a time where the Rangers had sort of taken over as the best team out there. And, you know, they've they've had a little bit of a slide of their own as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I think we all had the understanding that this was going to be probably the best division in baseball. And that even though the Rays got off to a super hot start, you know, it, it seemed unlikely that they were just going to uh, be the front runners or the clear front runners the entire year. And yeah, now here we are in July and, you know, Baltimore's only one game back. So we have Baltimore a game back, Toronto six back, Boston nine back, and the Yankees nine back. Tied for last. Red Sox and Yankees tied for last. That's super weird to see. Here's my question. If I gave you 100 beans, okay, mm-hmm. they can be any beans you like. Pinto, black, you know. Garbanzo. Garbanzo. Isn't a garbanzo bean just a chickpea? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Basically. They just have, it, it's kind of like how you're Foolish Baseball and Bailey Freeman. Right, me. and Foolish Bailey. So I just, you know, man of many names. If I give you 100 beans, cannellini beans, and I said, divvy up these 100 beans based upon who you think will win the AL East, mm-hmm. how many beans are you giving to each of the five teams? You have 100 Ooh, beans. Okay. I'm going to give Tampa, I'm going to give them 55 beans. 55 beans. Uh-huh. I'm going to give Baltimore... 20 beans. That's let's give them 20. Six, let's give them 20. That's, let's give them 25 beans. That's 80 beans for those following yeah. at home. All right. I'm going to give, and then I'm going to give uh, the Jays. I'm going to give the Jays seven beans, the Yankees two beans, and the Red Sox one bean. I think that adds up to 90 beans, man. Oh, okay. Did I do that wrong? Uh, okay. Let's do. <laughs> Let's do blue jays. Bailey's like, like Bailey's like, and ten beans for me. And ten beans for me. Yeah. Well, no, I had to. I didn't tell you we were shedding bean salary this year. We we only oh. have a ninety bean budget. You're trying um, to get under do, the luxury bean tax, right? Uh, let's do twelve beans for the Jays. Okay. Uh, five for the Yankees. Three for the Red Sox. Mm, three beans for Bean Town. More like no beans town. Ooh, I think you're probably know. right. I think that's a little hot on Tampa and a little low on Toronto. That's my yeah. I mean, I thought Toronto was going to win that like preseason division. Like I was thinking, oh, the Blue Jays will win the East this year. But uh, and what's interesting is they are they have. Uh, I feel like the fans of their team when they watch that team, they're like, we're not very good this year. Like I can't believe this team. And then you go and look at their record and you're like, Oh, they're 53 and 41. Like they're like, they're just kind of like the least impressive 53 and 41 out there. They're just good. Like they're good. They're totally good. I'm yeah, worried that their season's going to end the same way it did last year. In, in situations like this, I always like to say, okay, so they're good, but why aren't they great based upon right. where our expectations were? And it's pretty much Alejandro Kirk. 
has not hit. Yeah. Dalton Varsho has not hit. And Alec Manoa spent two months figuring his shit out. Right. And that's basically it. Yeah, otherwise they're pretty great. And then for the Rays, they got off to that outrageously hot start, right? And at the time, it was like, okay, Rays cheating magic. This is not sustainable. And most of it has been pretty sustainable. Luke Rayleigh, Jose Siri have been basically just as good as they were in the beginning of the season. But then you have the pitching staff where for the last five years, the Rays could just send you or me or, you know, the uh, Willy Wonka out there and he would get three outs and two ground balls and a strikeout, right? But that has not been the case this year to the same extent. The revolving door of magical Rays relievers has struggled more than I think we're used to. So that's such a weird one. I'm very inclined to ride with Baltimore considering I have fan bias there. Mm -hmm. But watching them every day, I think that I'm less confident in their ability to win the division than if I was sitting in your seat and I was just taking the Orioles in from a neutral perspective. I just don't think the pitching will work. Yeah, and I mean, that was that was the discussion even uh, preseason, you know. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. If maybe the deadline decides it, honestly. Yeah, and there are a lot of arms out there that they go out and get. Lucas Giolito, Shane Bieber, Shohei Otani. Just yeah. saying Shohei Otani around any other team feels like the cheapest, most bullshit thing to say. Like, oh, they could go get Otani. It's like, oh, I could... You know, I could quit baseball and get into consulting and get a big house. Right? Yeah, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna be big four. Yeah, you know, I've, I'm gonna go work for PwC. Is <laughs> the equivalent of trading for Shohei Otani. Um, last topic before we take a quick break: the Padres. When I oh, texted you Bailey to come on the show, I was like, "What do you want to talk about?" And one of the first things you said to me was Michael Garcia, which we'll talk about later. But then. You said, why are the Padres bad? Because it is easy to watch the Mets and look at the Mets baseball reference page and figure out why they're bad, right? Because the old Mets have not played enough or have not played well enough, and the offense is taking kind of a step back compared to where it was last year. The Padres have pretty much been, at least on the high end, what we expected them to be offensively. And yet here they sit, I believe, six games under 500. On July 17th. So Bailey, why are the Padres bad? Explain me. It's it's sort of a, a combination of uh, bad luck, sequencing, and, and lack of clutch, which is to say, if you go and look at some of these, you know, at the individual stats of the players, there's not actually that much to complain about. I mean, Machado's been, he had a slow start. Now he's starting to heat back up again. Soto's been Soto. Tatis has been Tatis, you know, Grisham and Kim have probably been a little bit higher than expectations. Bogarts has been fine, certainly not bad. Uh, rotation has been really good overall. Uh, they have Josh Hader, who, you know, is once again looking like, you know, maybe one of the top relievers in baseball, like top three or so, which I don't think was necessarily guaranteed coming into this year, given how he struggled. 2.84 ERA from Michael Waka in 85 innings. Yeah, that's great. Seth Lugo, who wasn't even really a starter, has a ERA under four. Right. Like, so much has gone right. If I showed you just the stats 
you would say, oh, the Padres are four games up. Right. And and the issue is, you know, it, you know, you could talk about in terms of their offense. Their offense has is has a 104 OPS plus. Uh, you know, they play in a pitcher friendly park, but overall, you know, they hit better than the average team. But their problem is they can't really get the hits and string the hits together when it matters. You know, as a team right now, they have a 197 batting average, 287 on base percentage and 323 slugging percentage in high leverage, which is the third worst in Major League Baseball. Uh, they're, you know, they're five and 16 in one run games, which when you have a closer like Hayter should not happen. Right. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and it's just it's just uh, they're they're good individually but they're not good just like cohesively right now. And it's just kind of funny because when you think about it coming into the season, you think about all these projection systems and like Vegas and everyone who's trying to predict how the season would go. You could accurately predict the individual performance of every player on a roster. But if these things don't quite shape up how you want them to, you could be totally wrong about the team's record at this point in the season. So if I was on television in 2004, during post-game for the Padres, I would say the following thing. They're just not playing together as a team. Yeah. But what the fuck does that mean? How much of the Padres' inability to string hits together is some lack of team chemistry versus bad luck versus individual players maybe not being as clutch? Actually, before you answer that, where are you at in terms of the legitimacy of the concept of clutch? I like most sabermetrically inclined people. I I don't think it's a huge factor for a lot of players. Um, there every now and then, I think for pitchers, it it maybe matters. Like there are guys who can ramp it up, like their velo, you know, when their space is loaded. Um, but as far as for like an entire team, you know, over the course of a season, I don't really believe in the concept. I agree with you. I think that you have clutch on the high end and the low end for hitters. I think that 85% of baseball players are the same amount of clutch. And then you have 10% or more and 5% simply do not have that dog inside of them. Mm -hmm. And so there is no way that all the Padres as a unit, it's not like the Padres went out and were like, we got to find the least clutch nine we possibly can. Exactly. It is not a skill that you can identify on the low end in such a small sample. Okay, so let's take clutch, crumple it up, throw it away. Mm -hmm. What are other legitimate explanations for this lack of luck? I mean, first of all, I guess the most legitimate explanation is that it has to happen to somebody every year, right? There's Mm. there's gonna be these fluctuate there's gonna be teams that are gonna outperform their run differential. There's gonna be teams that uh, you know, get the clutch hits and that leads to more wins over the course of the season. There's going to be teams that, you know, get a lot of uh, one run wins. And then there's going to be teams that that doesn't happen to. And, you know, I as, as far as why it's happening to the Padres this year, I don't really know because, you know, it's not something that is replicable year over year. It's not like, you know, the teams that are super clutch this year are going to be super clutch next year. And the teams that are unclutched this year are going to continue to be on clutch. So, I, I would really lean heavily towards uh, the concept of bad luck. You could maybe look into the lineup construction a little bit and, you know, you see that there's maybe not that much like 
you know, OBP skills apart from Soto. But I mean, that's just that feels kind of nitpicky. It does. And it's not like these guys aren't friends. And even if they weren't friends, that doesn't actually matter. I don't believe that if there was runners on second and third and one out, Xander Bogarts is going up to the plate and being like, man, Tatis, what he did last year was really selfish, getting suspended. I'm going to strike out. Right? That's just not how baseball players work. I do believe that the overall vibe and energy of a workplace does contribute to the ability or, or to the output of the people in that workplace. But at the same, it's not like these guys aren't succeeding the rest of the time. And so right. that is why it is kind of bizarre. In a situation like this, usually you would also hear fans clamoring to fire the manager. And I think if the Padres manager was literally anybody else, we would hear that. But I've heard no peeps about firing Bob Melvin. And that's just because he has as much of a reputation for being good at the job as it gets. We have no clue what makes a good manager versus what is a good baseball team with an average manager. And Bob Melvin feels like one of the examples where we are just kind of accepting that he's good at this. Mm -hmm. If this was Andy Green or Chris Woodward, who is the Rangers manager, he'd be gone, right? Yeah. And they would have brought in a Bob Melvin. But the Bob Melvin is already there. Right. How would you fix this, Bailey? If I'm putting you in the dugout and I'm like, you're the new hitting coach for the San Diego Padres for the rest of the year. What's what's step one? Step one, this, I think we you can you can answer this legitimately or with uh -huh. an incredibly stupid response. You're no, well, I th I think you know when it comes down to the role of a manager coach, like you're a curator of vibes. I think is is kind of the job, and I think there just needs to be a new vibe curated. Uh, among the San Diego Padres because the the vibes around the team seem kind of bad and I don't know if it's it's if it's it's almost like a chicken and the egg situation are they are the are the vibes bad because they've gotten unlucky or you know have they gotten unlucky and then the you know the vibes are bad but um yeah I think there's honestly I would you know I'd make them go play wiffle ball or something I just mm. just just to do something different mandatory trip to the water park right yeah take them all out to a baseball game sure yeah take them to a ball game let's we're gonna go watch the on our off day we're gonna go watch the lake elsinore storm yeah that's another one here's just, here's what i would do. do something different do something different i would let xander bogarts write the lineup i would let him pick uh, the lineup. that's good it's about you guys right it's not about me it's your team, player-led. You write the lineup. I would take the lineup card with a Sharpie, throw it on the table in the clubhouse, and I'd say, figure it out yourselves, and I'd leave. Because <laughs> I'm just I'm just so, a skipper. It's funny because there is a small chance that could lead to even more discord. <laughs> like, that could, like that could backfire. Because what if Tatis and Soto both want to lead off, you know? <laughs> right. I, this happens to me sometimes where I'll let my Little League kids pick the lineup. Right. And they will sometimes come to an agreement about who should be hitting where. But I, what will often happen is every kid legitimately thinks they should be hitting first in Little League. Mm -hmm. And so I like the idea of you slam the lineup card on the table in the Padres Clubhouse and Trent Grisham's like, I got to be leading off. Austin Ola's like, I need to be hitting fourth. It's like, ah, right. maybe, maybe you don't. So... Do do you think they turn around? Like, are the Padres 
in the playoffs in three months? I, I, I don't. I think they're. I think they're. They're pretty far back. You know, the 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 National League. There's a bit of a gap there, uh, in terms of you know the teams that are above 500. They're above 500 by a few games. The teams that are below 500. They're below 500 by a few games. And they're they really are in 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 terms of their record at least. They're in that you know that Mets range. They're in that ah. Cubs range. You know, ah. they're not. They're not. You know, we can't all be the Miami Marlins. No, we cannot. Uh, however, at Toronto, at Detroit, home against Pittsburgh, Rangers at Colorado. So if there was ever time for them to go on a little bit of a heater, it would be now. They have played somewhat better, or they did. They were playing somewhat better before the break, but losing three out of four to the Phillies in a bunch of close games, not the way to hop out of the all-star break. Let's take a quick break ourselves, and when we get back, we're going to spend about an hour and a half breaking down Roki Sasaki, Tim Anderson, and Michael Garcia. This is former PGA Tour winner Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a SiriusXM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world, and I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast, Jake Mintz, Bailey Freeman. Now, Bailey, where do you live, man? Atlanta, Georgia. Which is in what country? Uh, well, formerly the Soviet Union, uh, but now it's its own uh, independent republic. Got it. But you do not live in Japan? I do not live in Japan, and I've never been to Japan. Wow. But you still know about Roki Sasaki, even though you've never been to Japan? Yeah, there's this uh, there's this amazing tool called uh, the Internet, and sometimes you can use it to look up stats for baseball players that don't even play in the country you play in, like guys who plays for the Blue Jays, for example. Oh, right. You can look at yeah. you can look at Blue Jays players. Yes. Wow, that's crazy, dude. Um, for those of you who don't know who Roki Sasaki is, which I imagine is some of you folks, Bailey, can you give uh, you, let's let me paint a scenario. You walk into an elevator. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, and you have a doctor's appointment on the fifty-third floor, and it's you and a stranger. And the stranger recognizes you, and they say, "Who's Roki Sasaki?" What are you saying to them before you get to your doctor's appointment? If he was a prospect, he'd be by far the number one prospect in baseball. If he was, uh, you know, a young major leaguer, he would be one of the most valuable assets. And it's because he uh, is pitching at a young age at a high level that hasn't quite been seen in Japan's NPD. Ding! Oh, time to get your eyes checked. Yeah. We have reached your floor. Roki Sasaki, like Bailey said, 21-year-old Japanese pitcher. And he's the best pitcher in Japan. Already, yeah. he would be a top, probably a top 20 pitcher in baseball. Like, I feel very confident in saying top 20 in the big leagues right now. He is six feet. Oh, I, I closed out his page. He's he's tall. He's a tall, lanky boy. And his stuff is outrageous. He's currently averaging. This is by uh, 
referencing Delta Graphs, which is basically like the NPB version of Fangraphs for those who don't use it. He's averaging 99.1 on his fastball over there. He has a 62% ground ball rate and a 76% in-zone contact rate. 76% in-zone contact, right? I guess you could say 24% in-zone whiff rate, mm-hmm. which would put him at number two in Major League Baseball right now behind only Spencer Strider. And his 62.7% ground ball rate would be the highest in baseball. And usually guys who have a lot of strikeouts don't get a lot of ground balls. Framber Valdez is one of the obvious exceptions to this. And obviously there is a skill level gap between NBB and Major League Baseball. But I guess what we're trying to convey is that Roki Sasaki is so much better than anybody else in Japan that he would be so valuable so quickly here in the States. Yeah, he he is he's incredible, and he is uh, he's truly a, a generational pitcher. And I I do think the relationship between the the strikeouts, the whiffs, and then the ground balls is telling here because he is you know equal parts uh, Spencer Strider, and then like let's say last year from Valdez. right? And so what it's worth maybe taking a quick look at what his arsenal is. So this is also via Delta Graphs. He's throwing around uh, 50-ish percent fastballs, which is what I would do if I threw 99. And the notable thing about him, he's only throwing about 13% sliders and then around 1% or 2% curveballs. He's throwing around 30% splitters. Mm -hmm. In the big leagues, splitters account for one5 of all pitches in Japan splitters account for about 10.5% of all pitches. I could do an entire podcast episode about how that stat is why Japan won the WBC in the final against the U S because Paul Goldschmidt saw more splitters in that game than he had the previous season combined. Right. Which is nuts. It doesn't really matter how good your splitter is if it's a pitch that you just haven't seen that much visually. And I think it is why splitters have had a bit of a renaissance over the last couple years. That number has certainly ticked up. And so if Sasaki comes over here, Bailey, and he throws 30% split that he can locate it and get ground balls on it and whiffs on it below the zone, and he's throwing 99, and it's coming out of the same angle, I mean, yeah, I mean he's gonna be like Cy Young candidate immediately. You know, I mean that that's that's the type of potential we're talking about here. And he's 21 years old, right? He can't he could barely have a drink. He can have some sake for Sasaki. That's the best. I, that's the best I got. Zero points to Gryffindor on that one. I uh, I assume the, I assume is the drinking age 18 there. I have no idea. I would hope so. That's a real country. Um, when is he allowed to come over? Like, when is he a free agent? Is it, is it seven years, six years? Roki Sasaki, when can he be my friend? Let me Google that. Can <laughs> yeah, po- I'm writing posting date slash when he can be my friend. 2027. Okay. Sasaki will not hit the professional experience threshold and does not turn 25 until 2026. So unless he takes the Otani route of posting before age 25, the earliest he will make his debut is 2027, which 
I could imagine a scenario where he comes before that. Part yeah. of the reason why Otani came before that is it was like a I have conquer, conquered all there is. Right. Right. All the I've no too worlds easy. left. Yeah. And so he had to find the last world, Major League Baseball, to conquer. You're and saying Otani that, wept. Yeah. Because Otani. he had no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> Roki wept. So hopefully that does happen. And I think it's worth saying, Bailey, like, even if he doesn't come over till 27, this is someone that you should care about as a baseball fan. Yes. Just because he's not doing it in the best league in the world doesn't make it any less impressive. If a soccer player scores 40 goals in the Italian league, that's still impressive, even though it's like the fourth best league in the world. Right. That's a I'm a, I'm a Bundesliga that's, fan. That's still, you know, that's, you know, Slaton would do that or, you know, right. I don't know. You know, that's a great Just, player. Exactly. Like just because it's not in the big leagues doesn't mean we shouldn't be wowed by it. And so I would I would encourage people to like go watch Sasaki videos on YouTube, like seek out pitching ninja mm. pitch mix gifts. Like make sure this is someone that you know about and care about so that when he comes over, you can have a seamless transition and you can brag to all your friends about Roki Sasaki. Can I say can I say one more thing about just watching Sasaki videos on YouTube? You yeah, should watch enough Roki Sasaki that you know the conversion between kilometers per hour and miles per hour. That's when you've seen enough. Which is what, Bailey? No clue. 1.6 or something like that? <laughs> I think so. He had a pitch that was 165 kilometers an hour. Uh-huh. And I think that converts to like 102.7 or something. So it sounds like I'm about right. I think you're right about right. From a great baseball player to one who used to be and Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson kind of sucks. Yeah. Um, not as a guy. He's an interesting guy, a flawed guy in some respects, but certainly a positive force in our sport. But as a baseball player in the year of our Lord, 2023, Tim Anderson is ass. Tim Anderson is slashing. 227 batting average, 264 on base, 266 slug for an OPS plus of 47. That is 53% worse than the league average hitter. It is by far the worst year of his career, and he is, I would comfortably say, the worst hitter in baseball. This is all happening in front of what might be a free agent year for him. He has a $16 million team option. Will the White Sox pick that up? I don't know. There was a lot of speculation before the season. Would Tim Anderson get traded if the White Sox were bad? I don't think there are any teams in baseball that are going to give up anything for Tim Anderson right now. Bailey, what the shit happened here? Yeah, well, uh, it's so one thing. The thing about Tim Anderson is that he's a player that's sort of perplexed the sabermetric community for uh, a few years there. He would run really high batting average on balls and play higher than, you know, maybe traditional knowledge would say is uh sustainable and so he was like a really he was a player i would research a lot and what i basically came away from the research when he was really good was that he had really calibrated his swing so that he was able to pull ground balls hit line drives up the middle and then hit fly balls oppo a lot of his power has been oppo he hits a insane amount of opposite field home runs um 
And uh, that blueprint has has fallen apart a little bit, uh, especially with regards to way fewer line drives up the middle and way fewer fly balls. I mean, this guy hasn't homered in a calendar year. So he's just, you know, he's obviously not getting into his home run swing. And then, you know, the the ground balls, on the other hand, are up. And, the, you know, the good thing for him about pulling a ground ball is that it used to be that was still a pretty, you know, a pretty uh decent outcome for him because he had the speed to potentially get an infield hit or just, you know, he would just hit it where they ain't essentially. And, uh, you know, so his ground ball rate is up this year, but he is, you know, his sprint speed. If you look at his, you know, stat cast page is like going down. He's not quite the burner that he used to be. And so, uh, yeah, overall, just the, the Tim Anderson blueprint of, you know, pulled ground ball line drive up the middle fly ball opposite field has not, uh, you know, really worked out for him this year at all. And so he's completely fallen off a cliff. He has hit five balls this year, 360 feet or further. Yeah. That is not a recipe for success. And of those five, four of them were the first week of the season. He has hit one ball over 351 feet since March the 7th. Or April the 7th, sorry. Not March the 7th. It is bad. It looks bad. That's the other thing is sometimes when players fall off a cliff, you watch them hit and you're like, oh, it looks fine. This is bizarre. Tim Anderson looks out of sorts. It looks wonky. And you make a good point, Bailey. Like, he was kind of living on the edge already where his success was – it was sustained enough that we believed in it. Mm -hmm. But the way he was going about it was a little fluky and a little – like, the the trap door could open at any time. Yes. If one of the skill sets – yeah. I call it a tightrope player where they're good, but they're always kind of on the tightrope and you're afraid they're going to fall off. And that is exactly what has happened here to Tim Anderson. If I was a team that believed in my hitting development, I would get Tim Anderson. And I would say, because the, the thing to remember about Tim, right? He is athletic enough to make adjustments if he's amenable to them. And what I would imagine is that Tim Anderson on the 2023 White Sox does not have a lot of reasons to believe in the coaching staff and their mechanical advice for him. I would be like, I would be stubborn if I was Tim Anderson on this team. And so we might be inching towards a change of scenery situation for Tim, which is sad considering what he meant to this franchise and how we never really saw him take them to the true promised land besides two first-run exits in the postseason. So... I mean, look, hopefully Tim turns it around. He's great. The I don't know if you read Matthew Roberson's GQ article on him a couple weeks ago. He did a profile on him. All that stuff about Tim is true. Like the way that he was treated by other people in baseball for being a loud, brash, black person in the league who flipped his bat and whatever. That's all true. But the fact of the matter is, like, dude has no home runs. Yeah. You know? And, and if you don't hit any home runs in a whole season, you're not going to be able to maintain yeah. the respect that he you, should have you, had years ago. Yeah, you need to if you're not hitting homers, you need to like walk twice as much as you strike out and that's never going to be Tim Anderson. And it's not just like not hitting homers where we're like, "Oh man, like this guy's not hitting any homers." No, 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 no. no. He is not hitting any homers. Zero yeah. homers. No homers. He's homerless. 
That is not what we want to see. I think the White Sox are going to blow it up within the next couple weeks. Um, I think so, too. I think he's gone if anybody takes him. I think Giolito's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe Lynn's gone. I think Lynn's gone. Yeah, that's that's a brutal, brutal situation for White Sox fans. Two more things before we get out of here. Michael Garcia. This was another one that you really wanted to talk about. Yeah, and I I can make it uh, fairly snappy, but he he's uh, Michael Gal- Michael Garcia. If you don't know who he is, he's a, a rookie for the Kansas City Royals. So if you haven't been paying attention to the Kansas City Royals, I don't blame you. Uh, but um, yeah, he's he's a he's an interesting player. He's he's been highly rated on some of the prospect watching websites. I think the Fangraphs guys really like him. Other ones, not not a lot of coverage, but. Uh, what I like about Michael Garcia, there's a couple things here. Uh, if you just go on, like, say, his baseball savant page, he does not chase outside of the zone, and he makes a lot of contact inside the zone. Uh, and when he makes that contact, he's hit the ball generally pretty hard consistently. He has 89th percentile hard hit rate at just around 50% there. Uh, his sweet spots percentage is also uh, above the league average. And so he's hitting the ball really well. I think maybe the slightly more interesting thing here is that he is a shortstop by trade. Uh, but of course, he is kind of blocked by uh, Bobby Witt Jr. So they have brought him up where he has primarily played third base. And although he's only played about half the season so far, maybe two thirds of the season so far, he's already at plus nine outs above average. <laughs> so he may, the funny thing to watch for with Michael Garcia is he may just win the Gold Glove Award at a position he hadn't played professionally. <laughs> That is a great example of shortstop is harder than everything else. And yes. if you are a good defensive shortstop, Tatis is showing this too, right? If you're a good right. defensive shortstop, you could do anything in life. You could be an artist. You could be an astronaut. You could play third base. Yeah. Totally doable. You could work for a big four consulting company. That's the dream, baby. PWC, if you're listening, give me a call. I already got like four fucking jobs. I'll add a fifth. Let's talk about a couple players getting called up here and then we'll say goodbye. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez is back up for the Orioles. Grayson, friend of the show, shouts out. Yeah. He entered the year as probably a consensus top three pitching prospect in baseball alongside Yuri Perez and Andrew Painter. Painter has had arm troubles all year. Yuri Perez has been like the best pitcher in the world, maybe since he got called up, if not a top 10 pitcher in baseball. And Grayson came up, had 10 MLB starts, and posted a 7.35 ERA with a 2.58 home run per nine and a 4.17 walk per nine. Those are the two concerning numbers when you look at him. He was still striking a lot of guys out. He was just giving up too many homers and walking too many batters, and that's why he had a 7.35. So then he goes down to AAA, which, by the way, super crazy offensive environment in, in AAA. I know he was in the International League with the Orioles. Triple uh, A affiliate in Norfolk and not in the PCL, where the ball flies even more. But then he posted a 1.96 ERA in Triple A with a 0.87 home runs per nine. Unfortunately, that walk rate did not tumble significantly with a 4.14. He is being called back up to start against the Dodgers. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Which it's not just like, like the Dodgers are good, Bailey. It's the, the thing that Grayson is bad at, which is throwing enough strikes. The Dodgers are the best at by a mile. They yes. do not chase. So 
why are the Orioles calling Grayson up to face the Dodgers in his first start up at the bigs? Yeah, that that doesn't necessarily seem like a recipe for success. But, you know, there's there's maybe a level of unfamiliarity there for the Dodgers. They have seen other major league pitchers before. I, I'm that well aware true. of the fact that they have seen they have seen someone who throws a fastball like Grayson Rodriguez before. They've seen someone with his pitch mix before, which is, by the way, ever evolving, which is kind of why he's had sort of these weird fluctuations in numbers to begin with. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's an interesting one. And maybe maybe sort of revealing, to, you know, you were saying is sort of the Orioles fan, Jake, that it's hard for you to trust this team's ability to win the division when they're starting pitching in particular is so suspect. Yeah, and their pitching development has, at least in the minor leagues, has not really borne fruit in the way that their hitting development has. And it's tough to like, you can't close your fist and shake it at the at the air about it because they have been the best hitting development organization in baseball over the last two years by like an enormous margin. And so Grayson Rodriguez having some scuffles, which all pitchers do, most pitchers do, is kind of unfair. I am... The thing that worries me most about Grayson is that I think he might need the 95 to 97 fastball velocity to succeed in the big leagues because the other aspects of his fastball, the shape, the movement, the spin, the release point are not particularly great at the big league level. And so if he doesn't have the real gas the secondary stuff might not be good enough for him to thrive. Um, it might be closer to a mid-rotation starter than the front-end guy we were promised. If you look at his fastball shape stuff, it it looks like Scherzer's kind of, like mm-hmm. the, the movement patterns. But then you have to remember, where is Scherzer releasing his fastball from? Yeah, versus where, where Grayson is releasing, releasing it from, right? Scherzer... Yeah. If you're listening, you could picture it, right? He's like contorting his body over to get his arm really low. Yeah. So that creates a different angle on the pitch, whereas Grayson is like 6'6", and there's not a lot of funk going on, and so it's more of a generic heater coming in that people can see. And so that's kind of... Look, like I love Grayson, and I hope he's really good, but I think those are the areas where he needs to show improvement at the big league level if he's going to have success. Two other guys, uh, I guess three other guys who got called up, Christian Encarnacion Strand, is up for the Cincinnati Reds. Bailey, you seem like someone who's interested in in CES. Oh, definitely. I mean, so, uh, you know, just uh, just a quick review here. Uh, he was acquired uh, from the Twins by the Cincinnati Reds uh, around the trade deadline last year. Uh, they sent away uh, Tyler Malley. They got uh, CES and Spencer Steer in that trade and uh, Stephen Hajar, who's uh, also a pretty decent uh, pitching prospect for them. But they no, they. I'm pretty sure they sent Stephen Hajar to the Guardians for Will Benson. Is that right? Oh yeah, that is correct. My bad, which I missed is, out on that one. Which makes which that is trade, also, yeah, even crazier, right? Tyler Molly has been pretty poop, and then yeah. got TJ for the Twins, and they got Will Benson, who's been an above average big leaguer this year. Spencer Steer, who probably could have been an All Star, and then yeah. CES, who's coming up as one of the top prospects. That is a chance to be one of the worst trades in recent memory. Yeah, that's I mean, that that is a trade that uh, effectively is going to constitute about 33 percent of their lineup. So uh, that's a pretty good outcome for them. Yeah, I guess guess the interesting thing with CES, you know, he's he's been crushing it in the minor leagues. uh, And I think the interesting thing for the Reds is, uh, you know, how do they find 
how do they make this lineup work with him in the fold now? Because, uh, you know, he's probably going to be, you know, DHing some, probably going to be first base some. Um, it seems like probably the most likely casualty here is going to be Jake Fraley, but Jake Fraley hasn't even been bad. Um, and then, you know, Votto, maybe they can, you know, give him some rest days in there. He's, he's obviously, uh, one of the elder statesmen of the game. Uh, but I mean, Votto's slugging 600 in 20 games. So, you know, uh, at the same time, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be sort of interesting. They're going to, there's going to be more sort of, I think, rotation uh, among some of these guys with, uh, uh, Incarnacion Strand in the mix. It is super interesting how mix and match this lineup is defensively, right? So Matt McLean can play third, short, or second. Ellie can play short or third. Spencer Steer can play third, first, second, and left. Uh, Jonathan India can play any of the infield spots. Christian Encarnacion Strand is probably first in DH, and that's really all it should be. Maybe a little little corner outfield, yeah. You could put him in a corner outfield. It's a super odd body type. He basically is built like a safety in the NFL, but doesn't have that same level of like straight line quickness that you might expect mm-hmm. from a safety. But he's like a bigger dude, but he's not burly. So, yeah, it'll be very bizarre. And then again, they have Nick Senzel, who plays every position known to man and Kevin Newman on the bench, uh, at least for now. I guess one of those two's got two guys could get jettisoned for Christian Encarnacion Strand. But the Reds, even if they are not as good as maybe we thought they were a month ago and they couldn't lose. They're incredibly watchable, which you cannot say for a lot of other teams in their similar position, the Cubs. Okay, last one. The Pirates called up Quinn Priester and Andy Rodriguez. The youth movement is here in Pittsburgh. They just got swept by the Giants. They're not a good baseball team right now, even though they had an incredible April. Tell me a little bit about Quinn Priester and Andy Rodriguez. Well, I'll start with Andy. I think the interesting thing with Andy is that, you know, two of their top prospects uh, over the past couple of years are catchers. And Henry Davis has been developed entirely as a catcher. He that's, you know, that's the position he's been playing in the minors. Andy more of like a almost a Dalton Varsho, like he'll play some outfield, he'll play some second base. And you kind of hear that and you think, oh, that sounds like he was just like a really fringy catcher defensively to begin with. And the thing is, I think a lot of scouts would have probably rated Andy's defense at catcher, uh, you know, ahead of Henry Davis's. So it's going to be at least interesting, um, you know, almost like uh, CES, you know, how how do these two guys, you know, work together? How does Andy Rodriguez look if he's playing some second base or some outfield out there? So what I think is going to happen Austin Hedges, by the way, has been the everyday catcher for the Pirates. Austin Hedges has a 25 OPS plus. That is 75% worse than league average. He has one home run this year. His OPS is 453. And yet he is playing every day because they love his defense and they assume that he is making all of the pitchers, the young pitchers and the staff better every day. Great, whatever. He's going to remain the backup, I think. Andy is going to remain, is going to be the starting catcher and Henry Davis is going to kind of filter in as the third guy. I would expect Andy to play pretty often while Henry Davis plays mostly in right field instead of catcher. This is not a bad problem to have. The Atlanta Braves, I love what they've been doing in catcher, right? Where they have Travis Darno and Sean Murphy, who are two of the best five catchers in baseball, probably. What that means is you are never having to have a real backup play. Right. You're never having to force an Austin Hedges type 
a Rene Rivera type into your starting lineup because on a day where you want to give Sean Murphy a nap, you just put TDA back there and there's no drop off. And so if the Pirates can develop these two guys as catchers and find a way to split that time at the big league level, I think it'll Mm -hmm. be really beneficial for them. Quinn Priester was the first round pick of the Pirates back in 2019. He is 22 years old from Illinois and he kind of blew up, I think, during the pandemic. There were some rumors. It was like, oh, this guy like might be one of the best five pitchers in baseball. It's kind of tailed off a little bit before that. And again, Bailey, it's because the fastball might not be as sexy as we thought it was. Right. And the the, the pitch that is sexy is the curveball. That's kind of what yep. it's always been for him. He's, you know, in his ideal sort of look for him is he's just going to throw that curveball just below the zone. He's going to get a lot of whiffs and ground balls off of that. But it's it's been all about finding the pitches to complement that. Right. And Priester, another good example of a player whose fastball dynamics, right, they all need to work together or enough of those components need to work together for the pitch to be effective at the big league level. This is per Eric Langenhagen's report on Priester over at Fangraphs. He calls the four-seam fastball decisive. Comes out of his hand from a high slot that looks like the kind optimized for data-friendly ride, but the pitch's downhill angle makes it less of a weapon at the letters and makes it vulnerable within the strike zone. And so when you're thinking about fastballs and you're watching pitchers throw fastballs, there is no more perfect fastball than Strider. Like Spencer Strider's fastball is the modern example of a perfect fastball. But you just need to have enough Strider-y components or be the exact opposite, right? And yeah. be tall with a ton of sink in order for that pitch to work. And for I, I think for prospects, we don't always know how their fastball is going to perform at the big league level until they do it. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Um, Bailey. That's all I have for you. I have nothing else to say to you. Do you have anything else to say? Do you want to, I have one more thing here on the sheet that I was thinking about yesterday as I took a poop. Sure. Um, Because someone was texting me about the Orioles, an Orioles fan, and they said, we look great. They said, we look great. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on using we and ours as a word to describe your favorite team? Do you say, who do we play this week when you're referring to the Braves? So I don't, but in my sort of like pre-foolish baseball, just a baseball fan days, I would have been more inclined to use that type of language when talking about the Braves. I think when I watch the Braves now, the thing that I probably say the most is like, wow, this team is really good or wow, they're playing great. You know, <laughs> like there, there's not a, I, I, they're so good that I almost feel like I shouldn't be a part of it. That's like, I, I'm not helping, but they're doing a great job over there. You know, um, you don't but, need to but, shoehorn yourself into the conversation. Right. Yeah. In fact, I think if I were in the mix, they'd probably be doing worse. Uh, but um, yeah, so, but as far as other people saying that, I do think that's like, that's almost like the, when people complain about that, that's almost on the level of like uh, people who who say the word sports ball and they're like, oh, what are you guys doing watching sports ball? <laughs> and it's like, oh, you said we won the game. You weren't even on the field, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I actually don't mind uh, the use of the the we in this case, mostly because I think, you know, uh, baseball is part of the social fabric. And for many people, you know, this is uh, like there's a community element to it and. 
um, yeah, the it's true. You know, you do feel like you're a part of something when you are supporting and watching your favorite team. So, yeah, why not we? But I'm interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, I've gone back and forth on this, too. I got sucked into this entire world by listening to a podcast called Up and In, which was on the Baseball Prospectus podcast world, Kevin Goldstein, Jason Parks. And they were both player evaluation types, right? They were like scouty people. And they were very anti-we mm-hmm. because they felt like when I say we, I am not contributing to the daily success of the Baltimore Orioles, right? I am not really living and dying with what happens on the field. My paycheck is not dependent on that. And I think about this in the context of like Dylan Lawson, who was the Yankees hitting coach who just got laid off a couple weeks, like last week. And it, for him to say, we, like, he is we, like, we, yes. like, if Josh Donaldson sucks, he, we, he don't have job now. And so there is an element of it where am I shoehorning myself into this conversation in a way that's inappropriate? But I flip back to the other side of things, and I agree with you, and here's why. The whole point of this, the whole point of the sport and giving a shit about baseball is to feel like you are a part of something. And that community aspect, there are parts of it that are real and that are meaningful. And there are parts of it that are kind of capitalism fugazi that baseball teams are trying to convince you, the listener, that you Mm -hmm. are a part of their community so that they can sell you tickets and merch and have you watch the games. And so every Major League Baseball team is trying to make the fans feel like they are part of the we. And because of that, if someone says we, that's fine because everything that they are watching and being told is pushing them towards a we. And so for that, I'm pro we. Yeah. And I mean, also, like how many, you know, how many times do uh, does the team get picked up by their, you know, home crowd? You know, that that's a we that they're helping, you know, when you <laughs> the 12th man, when you are watching like the when you were watching the Braves win the World Series. Mm-hmm. And they won. Did you say we did it? Or did you say they did it? I feel like I said they did it. But if it had happened a few years earlier, I probably would have said we did it. Well, Bailey, we did it. We did this podcast, Joe. Me and you together. Thank you for uh, stepping up and filling in for Jordan Schusterman. As a thank you, I will purchase one eBay item of your choice, baseball related. Value under thirty dollars. Okay, we we need okay. to compensate our 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 pitch hit guests here on this show, and so I would like for you to send that to me and let me know what it is, and I will I will send it your way. Oh, very excited about this. Okay, thirty dollars eBay baseball related. Those are your your uh, your constraints. Uh huh. I will find a trustworthy seller. Thank you. Otherwise, well, yes. <laughs> otherwise, who can we trust? Otherwise, it's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot. Bailey, anything else you'd like to plug before we say goodbye? Uh, I'm on TikTok. And sometimes I even forget that I'm on TikTok. Uh, but that's probably, uh, you know, one source of content that everyone isn't aware of that I do already. I posted a short on there about uh, Dowry, Dowry Beretta, the reliever for the Pirates, and his uh, what Pitching Ninja is calling the wrong way slider, uh, which I think is probably a, a pretty good way of putting it. But yeah, I, I'm on TikTok as foolish underscore Bailey. That is sweet. I will not check that out because I do not have TikTok, but everybody else should. Bailey, 
Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, folks, you can email us at baseballbarbacast at gmail.com. Make sure you rate and review. Jordan will be back on Wednesday, and we will ask him how his climb of Mount Kilimanjaro went. Until then, have a great couple days. Serious XM Podcasts.